Let me just take a moment to introduce myself. Uh, some of you see me up here on uh, occasionally on Sunday mornings as the host. Um, I'm also presently serving as uh, interim minister of outreach part-time here at Windsor Road, and my full-time job is at Judah Christian School as the director of spiritual formation. I've been there since 2015, and, and prior to that, I'd served in pastoral ministry uh, for 22 years with the Christian and Missionary Alliance, and so just wanted to give you a little bit of, of uh, background. <clears throat> this morning, I, I want to talk about the paradox of the Christian life. I've been a Christian now for over 35 years, and over the years have kind of wrestled with some different ideas on how the Christian life is supposed to work out. And, and uh, there are different, different ideas, different voices. Um, one author, uh, a man by the name of Rankin Wilborn, um, he wrote a book called uh, Union with Christ, and, uh, and it's a really, it's a, it's a phenomenal book, and I want to encourage you, if you are interested in this topic, um, I know of no better book on this subject uh, than this particular book. I know there's, there's uh, many that are out there. Uh, but in this book, um, Rankin Wilborn, he, he makes this comment. He says, in the main, there are two dominant voices of, on offer today. One we will call the way of extravagant grace, just believe. And the other we'll call the way of radical discipleship, just obey. And, and these two messages, over the course of my Christian life, I've wrestled with the, the, the just obey, um, just uh, the radical discipleship. And then the call of the gospel, the extravagant grace, and wrestling with how do these two seemingly contradictory paradox ideas fit together in the Christian life. And the problem is, is they're both biblical, and they're both true. And so how do we reconcile these seemingly uh, contradictory voices? So let me lay out the dilemma um, and look at, at some verses on each side. The first voice, uh, the way of extravagant grace, or just believe. Zephaniah 3.17, uh, often referred to as the, as the John 3.16 of the Old Testament, says this, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. The Bible tells us that, that God delights in you. That when he sees you, it's as if his heart was filled with joy that he burst out in song, that his, his love quiets our hearts, that he rejoices over us with gladness. Romans chapter 5, verse 5, carry on this thought. It says, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. The love of God has been poured out. And in fact, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, it says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is it did not know him. So the Bible tells us that God doesn't 
give us his love in a meager, measured out way, but that he lavishes it on us. He pours it into our hearts by grace in Christ, that we are the objects of his affection. We are the apple of his eye, that he delights in us, that he is never disappointed with us. He, he's never distracted, that, that his attention is on us because he has called us and chosen us and brought us to himself through Christ. In Luke 15, 20, the story of the prodigal son, uh, very familiar to us, and, and there, it's a story really of two sons, neither of whom understand grace for different reasons. But the, the, the younger son goes out and, and squanders his father's wealth and, and comes back and he's rehearsing himself, saying, Father, I'm not worthy to be your son. Just let me work for you as a slave. But it says that the father, when he was still, the son was still far off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And so the, the passage tells us of this, of this father's heart that moves towards sinners, not because we have our act together, not because we, we have it all together, but he embraced his son when his son was still uh, covered with the smell of sin. Deuteronomy 7, 6 says, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. So that we're a people holy to the Lord. We are his treasured possession that, that he delights in us. In fact, a few verses later, uh, Moses is telling us uh, what God says. Why does God love us? He doesn't love us because we're better than other people or we're more worthy than other people. He says, God loves you because he loves you. It was his good pleasure and his delight to work in you, to call you to himself so that you could be the object of his affection. And it was all by God's grace, Romans 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. So the Bible teaches us that our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and the finished work of Christ alone. That we don't do anything to earn our salvation. We don't do anything to maintain our salvation. It is purely by God's lavish grace upon us. And that the Bible tells us that God loves us with an everlasting love. That his love is unquenchable. It is constant. That God will never love you more than he does right now at this moment because his love is perfect. If his love could increase for you, that would mean that in some way it was deficient up until now. But his love for you is perfect. It is unchanging. It is constant. And when you mess up, his love does not diminish towards you because his love is perfect. It's constant. He is never angry at you because all of his anger towards sin was poured out on Jesus. And so he is never angry at us. But people hear this and they have concerns. Some people hear this and said, well, if that's the case, then it doesn't really matter how I live. You know, if, if it's all by grace, then what difference does it make whether I sin or I don't sin or I obey or I don't obey? God's going to forgive me anyway, so, you know, it's easier to, ask for, easier to ask forgiveness than permission. So, 
And, and the, the fear is, is that hearing this can minimize sin and the need for obedience. Why even try if it doesn't affect how God loves us? The Christian life may be seen as just a passive experience. All I need to do is, is let God love me, and if he wants to change me, he'll change me. If, he's not, if he doesn't, that's his business. Well, there's a second voice that calls out to us, and that's the way of radical discipleship, or just obey. So if the, if the first voice was the way of extravagant grace, and we see that that's taught in the Bible, the second voice is the voice of radical discipleship, just obey. Now listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Or Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And commentators, most commentators are in agreement of what this is talking about. Uh, that what, what the writer to Hebrews is saying is this, is that you need to strive for holiness because if holiness is absent from your life, you will not see the Lord. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but, but as he who has called you is holy, you also must be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And so the Bible tells us that we are children of our Heavenly Father, and that as children of our Heavenly Father, that we ought to reflect His character. And as God is holy, holiness ought to be a part of our lives as his children. And that we should turn away from the passions of our former life and turn to Christ and walk with him and follow him in obedience. This is seen even more starkly with some of Jesus' words in, in John's gospel, for instance. In John 14, 15, he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So the implication here is if you don't keep his commandments, do you really love him? The next chapter in John 15, 14, he says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus is talking to uh, the religious people, but their lives don't match what they're saying and so he says this to them. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? And in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 25, it says, uh, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul? So the Bible teaches that somebody who is in Christ, somebody who has placed their faith in Christ, has been made alive by the Spirit of God, and that that person is a new creature in Christ, and that increasingly he or she is going to be transformed to be more like Christ. That if we are to say that we are followers of Christ, that, that uh, obedience is a necessary result of true saving faith and not an optional addition. 
Now, we're not saved by our works. We're not kept saved by our works. But the good works are the result of genuine saving faith, and they demonstrate the reality that God is a part of your life. That if you have come into faith in Christ, that you have said that you have confessed your sins, you've asked God to come into your life, the Bible says that, that, that the Holy Spirit has regenerated you, has made you who were dead spiritually alive, that he has called you to himself, that he has adopted you into his family as his child, and that, that Christ is living in you through the person of the Holy Spirit so that you have moved from darkness into life and you now have a new trajectory in your life. And the Bible says if that isn't a reality, if you can't see any evidence of God at work in your life, then you need to question the very reality of that. Have you really come to know Christ? But there's a concern about this. We hear this and we think about the stability of our relationship with Christ and, and we start to think um, what, what one author calls a good day, bad day theology. If you think, well, well, God's love for me is dependent on how well I perform and if I, if I have my devotions this morning and I, you know, driving to work wasn't that stressful, um, you, know the, you know the thought bubble in your head when you're driving? Or maybe it's not just a thought bubble. Um, you know, so, so you have a good day, and then you think, well, you know, God's going to bless me because it's a good day. But what about those days where you roll out of bed, your, your alarm didn't go off, you're scrambling to get ready, everyone's cutting you off, we won't talk about that thought bubble. And then you think, well, God's not, you know, God's just disappointed. It's going to be a bad day. And, and we can have this good day, bad day, and, and we can slip into this performance mindset that God's love is dependent on how well I perform. And we see this gap between our, uh, what, what we know God says, and then we're, if we're honest with ourselves, we look at our lives and we see this gap, and it's very easy to become tired and discouraged and feel like a failure. So which is it? Is it the life of extravagant grace or the life of radical obedience? And the answer is yes. But, but here's the problem. Now, my kids have this amazing ability. Um, my son especially, I mean, he can be on the PS4 playing Fortnite and then have the iPad out and watching YouTube at the same time. You know, and I'm just like, I, I mean, that would drive me nuts. I don't know, like, I can only hear one or the other. I can't hear both. And, uh, and somehow, I mean, it's like, the, it's like, you know, ADD on steroids. I, I, you know, I, I don't know how to do it other than to turn one down in order to listen to the other. Now, but here's the danger, is these are both true, and, and we can hear the one voice of extravagant grace and start to turn down the voice of radical obedience. Or we can hear the voice of radical obedience and then begin to turn down the extravagant grace. And, and it's not a 50-50 proposition. That's the problem. There, it's a 100%, 100%. Both voices need to be turned up to full volume. But how do we do that? How, how do we reconcile these? And, and I know in my own Christian life, I've wrestled with this over the last... 35 years of being a Christian, and I kind of divide my Christian journey into different phases, and, and, and the first phase I, I refer to as the John MacArthur phase. 
I don't know if any of you know who John MacArthur is, an old-time radio preacher, and he was really, he's really great, still around, really great at preaching the imperatives of, of calling us to, to obedience to the Lordship of Christ. And as a young Christian, every night, 9.30 every night when I was up in Wisconsin, turned on the Christian radio station from 9.30 to 10 o'clock, and I'd get my daily dose of John MacArthur and, and this call of radical obedience. Just obey God. And there was kind of a little transition time that I'll refer to as my John Piper phase um, of, of just love God. You know, if you're familiar with John Piper and desiring God. And, 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 but the problem was it was still like my having to do to strive after God. But rather than doing, it was loving. But it was still focused on me. And so I kind of had this John Piper phase. Um, and then the... the the more recent phase in my life, I'll call the gospel-centered phase. There's a lot of authors that I could, I could pick out, um, different groups. It's a very, uh, gospel-centered is a very popular phrase, um, you know, together for the gospel and a lot of other websites. Um, and, and that's the just be loved by God phase. But both extravagant grace and the call to radical obedience are in the Bible. How do we resolve this? So that's, that's the dilemma. How do we resolve it? Well, we resolve it in the doctrine of union with Christ. And you're thinking, union with Christ? I don't think I've ever heard of that doctrine. Um, and, but, but here's the thing. Sometimes things are so much in front of you that you don't see it. And, and my, my wife's here. She can tell you I can't find anything. Uh, she's laughing because it's really true. Um, like, I, I, maybe it's all guys. Please bail me out. Maybe it's all guys, but like, like I'll ask my wife, like, where's the butter? And she's like, oh, it's in the refrigerator. I'm like, okay, but where in the refrigerator? So I'll open it up, and I'll start on the top shelf, and I'll look, and go the second, and the third. You know, and she's over here just, you know, trying to be patient. Like, no, it's right there in front of you. I'm like, I don't see it. Where is it? And finally, she gets frustrated, and she's like, it's right here. And she goes and reaches right in front of my eyes, and <laughs> the butter just appeared. Um, no explanation, but, but we have this, this, like some things are so obvious that we miss it. And union with Christ is one of those, in fact, let me, let me read some quotes throughout church history and in present authors about union with Christ. John Calvin said in the 1500s, the indwelling of Christ in our hearts, that mystical union is accorded by us the highest degree of importance. Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian, said, uh, by virtue of the believer's union with Christ, he really doth possess all things. The Puritan author Thomas Goodwin says, being in Christ and united to him is the fundamental constitution of a Christian. Robert Lethem, an author, says union with Christ is right at the center of the Christian doctrine of salvation. Lane Tipton, another theologian, says there are no benefits of the gospel apart from union with Christ. Robert Raymond said union with Christ is the fountainhead from which flows to the Christian every spiritual blessing. Todd Billings, in a book written in 2012 titled Union with Christ, said union with Christ is theological shorthand for the gospel itself. 
J.I. Packer, that well-known author of the previous generation, said, a communion between God and man is the end to which both creation and redemption are the means. It is the goal to which both theology and preaching must ever point. It is the essence of true religion. It is indeed the definition of Christianity. Another author said that to be saved means to be united to the Savior. And one final theologian, John Murray, said, Nothing is more central or more basic than union with Christ. It is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. So what is it? What, what, what does it mean? Now, think about our salvation, and I think sometimes... Even when we think about our own salvation, we, 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 we slightly get skewed because we think in terms of transaction, which is true. There is a, there is a reality that we have, we have received the righteousness of Christ and our sin was placed on Christ on the cross, but we don't receive a concept. We receive a person. We receive the person of Jesus Christ it is God the Son who died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And when, when Christ comes into our lives and we are brought into a real relationship, it is a relational reality. It is more than just a, a contract or more than just a transaction. It is a, it is a relationship with the living God through Christ. So how do we define union with Christ? And like I said, it's one of those things that's so common we miss it. Um, union with Christ means that we are in Christ and Christ is living in us. When you came to faith in Christ, you were adopted into the family of God. Christ came to live in you through the person of the Holy Spirit. In fact, if you were to do a Google search or if you have a Bible program and you were to look up the terms in Christ, in Him, or with Christ, you would find that those are the most all-encompassing terms to describe salvation in Christ. It, you know, if you, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Um, in fact, think about some of the descriptions that the Bible uses to describe our relationship with Christ. Um, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 32, it talks about marriage and, and the role of a husband and a wife. But then it, it concludes by saying this. It says, I tell you a mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. And so th through the Old Testament and the New Testament, salvation is described in terms of marriage, of these two becoming united as one. The Bible talks about salvation in terms of being a part of the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, for instance, it says that when we're united with Christ, we become a part of his body, and Christ is the head, and that imagery is taken throughout the Pauline epistles. Or John chapter 15, verses 1 through 7, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you abide in me and I abide in you, you bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. And so this idea of abiding in Christ, that Christ is the vine. We are the branches. We're united with Christ. And we draw our sustenance and our strength from him. And so over and over again, Peter compares us to a building. He says that we're being built up as living stones, being built up into a temple, and Christ is the cornerstone in 2 Peter chapter 2. 
well, how have we been united with Christ? And let me give you some references. And uh, the Bible tells us that we have been united with Christ. And in fact, in Colossians chapter 3, it says that we have been crucified with Christ. And so that, that by, when we came to faith in Christ, we have been crucified with Christ and we no longer live. Christ lives in us, he says in Galatians. We have been united with Christ in his death, it says in Romans chapter 6. It's chapter 6, verse 4. And then he says after that that we have not only been, he says, let me just read it. He says, do you not know that all of you have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Baptism, the, the number one symbolism of baptism is union with Christ. That we've been united with Christ in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. He says, we were buried with him, therefore, into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So we have been united with Christ. We have been crucified with Christ. We have been buried with Christ. We have been raised with Christ. And the Bible says we have ascended with Christ in Ephesians chapter 2. He says this in, in verses 6 and 7. Tells us about our union with Christ. He says, again, very familiar passage. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So even though right now at 1128 a.m. on a Sunday morning, you're seated here at Windsor Road Christian Church, but the Bible says that you have been united with Christ and right now in some mysterious, mystical way, you are now presently seated with Christ in the heavenly places because you are in Christ Probably one of the most challenging ones comes in 2 Peter chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 4. Um, he tells us that we have been partakers of the divine nature. He says this. He says, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled. And he, he tells us that we have been um, we have been partakers he says he says we god has granted us these very precious promises that, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature now he does not mean and be very clear he does not mean that somehow we are blended with god that is he does not mean that he also does not mean that in some way we have become god that is not what peter is saying but the reality that Peter is trying to communicate is that when you came to faith in Christ, you were united with Christ and that God himself, the creator and sustainer of all that is, came and began to live in you so that the power of the risen Christ is active and at work in your life right here and right now. Now, let me give you a couple of practical applications, but before that, let me distinguish two, two realities regarded to this union with Christ 
our union with Christ is what I've been talking about, and our communion with Christ. And let me help us understand, uh, because this is important for us to understand the difference. Um, and, and sometimes we confuse the two, or we, or we blend the two, and it causes us confusion in our spiritual life. Um, what is the difference between our union with Christ and our communion with Christ? Our union with Christ, what we have been talking about, is an objective, unchanging reality that is true from the moment you have accepted Christ. You were united with Christ in an unbreakable bond that never changes, that never diminishes. It is perfect, it is complete, that you are secure. But our experience, our communion with Christ is our subjective experience and understanding of that reality. We may or may not sense the manifest presence of God. God may seem far from us. Or when we sin, we may, our sin may cut us off from experiencing this intimacy of our relationship with God that God desires for us to have. And so our communion with God may fluctuate. Think about it in terms of marriage. The day you were married, and 40 years later, you are just as married as the moment you, be, you got married. You're not more married in 40 years. You're, you're just as married as you were the day that you walked down the aisle. That, that reality doesn't change. Now, your relational experience may go up and down, but the underlying reality that you became two became one is constant. And with our relationship with God, that, that constant union never changes, even though our security or our sense of that reality may ebb and flow or fluctuate. But our security is unshakable and permanent. And so the difference distinguishing between our union with Christ and our experience of that on a day-to-day -day basis, but let me just end with this. So what? The, okay, this is great, but how do, where does the rubber meet the road? Like, what, what, what difference does this make? And when you understand this, you realize it changes everything. It changes everything. You see, the reason why you read your Bible isn't because you want to amass a certain amount of facts and understanding of God and understand theology and figure things out. The reason why you, because you have an intimate relationship with God because Christ is living in you and you are in Christ and you want to know this one who is in you and walking with you and loves you. Why do you pray? You pray because God his lavish love is on you. You are in Christ. You are his child. His ear is attuned to you. Attuned to you. His eye is on you. And he delights to work in you and to move in you. And so you want to communicate and commune with this God who loves you. Understanding our union and our communion with Christ changes everything. Because you are in Christ, God the Father loves you just as much as he loves Jesus because you are in Jesus. 
Because Christ is in you, because Christ through the person of the Holy Spirit is living in you, the God of this universe, the sovereign Lord who created all things is at work in your life. And because Christ is in you, he gives you the power to fight against temptation and to fight against sin and to live a life pleasing to him, walking in obedience to him, not in your own strength, but in the strength of the living Christ, the power of the resurrection at work in you and through you because you are in Christ you don't have to try harder to earn God's approval he loves you perfectly and completely when you mess up you don't have to run away you can run to him because Christ is already in you and his love is towards you and there's no anger and wrath left for you because Christ is in you you can live a life that's pleasing to him You can live a life of holiness and obedience, not in your own strength, but in the strength that he provides. You can cry out to Jesus. This is a personal, intimate relationship, and this is where I think we miss it because we're we're talking about crying out to the God who loves you and who is living in you. Jesus, I need your help. I need your strength. I need your, I need, I, I can't do this on my own. I can't move in this direction, but by your power and your strength, you enable me to do what I can't do, and I trust in you. This isn't by my works, it isn't by my effort, but it's in reliance in the power and the presence of God himself living in us. So the, the Christian life is not passive. It's not let go and let God. But it's also not self-reliance. God helps those who help themselves. It's neither of those. It is an active dependence because I am in Christ. And so I I actively remember and rely on the reality of my relationship with Christ that is unchanging. And it's an active reliance. You see, God can give us the strength to do what we could never do on our own. It's not my strength. It's his strength that's at work in me and through me. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Because you are in Christ, you can know that you are never alone because Christ is in you. You you go and he says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I am with you always, even until the end of the age. He is in you. Because you are in Christ, your identity is in him. I am not defined by my background. I am not defined by by my family. I'm not defined by my circumstances. I'm not defined by my sin. I am defined by my relationship with Christ, and I I am in him. And because Christ is in me, I'm never defined by my struggles. It is God who is at work in me. I am a child of God. I am a beloved son of God, and that is my identity. And because of that reality of Christ in me, I can live that out as an obedient child. You see, you don't have to choose between the indicatives and the imperatives of the Bible. All that God says about who you are is true in Christ, and all that God calls you to do is true because of Christ, and you can live it out in his power and his strength. C.H. Spurgeon was once asked if he could reconcile two seemingly contradicting truths to each other. And Spurgeon replied, well, I wouldn't try. I never have to reconcile friends. And the call to extravagant grace and the call to radical obedience aren't in opposition to one another. 
They're friends. And we, we understand that when we understand our union with Christ. That, that we are in Christ and Christ is in us. Let me pray.